Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 38. This is God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she was, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, come, let me go into you. For he did not know that she was the daughter-in-law, was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you pledge me, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we will, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. 
When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. In the movie, The Money Pit, Tom Hanks and Shelley Long uh, play the parts of a couple who have to leave their Manhattan apartment. And so they have an opportunity to buy a home outside of the city for an unusually and suspiciously low price. And when they're moving in, they shut the front door behind them and the front door and the whole frame fall down off the house as a symbol of what's about to come. And as it turns out, uh, this home was inexpensive because they think it needed a few repairs, but it needs uh, a lot of repairs. The, the tub winds up falling through the floor and they, uh, they try to uh, turn a light on in the kitchen and it causes a fire and a closet collapses and things are getting worse and worse and worse. And they had no idea. They, they knew that there was something wrong, but they had no idea the depths of it. We read the Bible, and in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat fruit. Okay, God told them not to eat fruit. It's a little sign of what's to come. And then as it unfolds, we meet a, a man who's resentful, and he murders his brother. Terrible, but these things happen, right? And then you keep reading. And then you find, wait a second, there seem to be really deep problems, that seem impossible to fix. And in Genesis 1, we meet God who orders chaos. You find yourself reading the Bible and saying, how on earth is God going to make order out of this? What hope is there? And you don't get too far into Genesis before the call of Abraham. So hopeful. God has appointed a man and his descendants to be part of his plan to bring things back, uh, to bring renewal. Um, and it's going to be Abraham's descendants. But then you read the story of Abraham's descendants and the discouragement continues. Uh, this is a, a family that's called to be faithful and called to be a light. And we come to a passage like ours today that's now working from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to one of Jacob's sons, Judah. The focus of this particular story, which is part of the broader, we're calling these, this sermon series the Joseph stories because we're looking at a section of the Bible that really focuses on Joseph and what happens to him. But it really is the story of Jacob and his family. And, and the bigger story in the Bible is a story about Judah. Because as you follow Abraham's descendants, it becomes clear within this section uh, with uh, the end of Genesis, but even throughout, that the descendants of Judah are the central point of the plan because it's through Judah that David, the great king, comes. It's through Judah and then David that Jesus comes. But you read only this story and you think, but, but Abraham's descendants are to be faithful and upright and to shine light and to be a blessing. And you wonder, how is God going to do any of that through, through Judah? <laughs> you know, you read this, and, and I think when you get to the end of Genesis, if all you had was, uh, was the book of Genesis, you'd say Judah must have disqualified himself. Look, look at how terrible things went uh, in, the, in the chapter we looked at the last couple of weeks in this passage. Um, and it raises the question for us as we come to this passage, how on earth can God bring good out of this, out of these people, out of this world? 
And it's an important question because for each of us as individuals who strive to live good, upright lives, however we conceive of or define that, you know, the confrontation with our own deep flaws or a deeply flawed world that, that triggers the worst in us, uh, we find ourselves saying, what, what hope is there for change? Um, is it possible that, that I could be redeemed? Is it possible that our broken world could experience healing in any way? And so we give ourselves to that, but it's so discouraging because every time we're trying to fix one thing, we only see the greater depths of the other problems. And so this story plays an important role. This chapter on its own, Genesis 38, a, a discouraging one, but it's a crucial one because it seems to be what we assume is a turning point in the life of Judah. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at is, is this moment where things go from bad to worse. And yet it's not the end of Judah's story, even though we're only looking at this one chapter today. Where I want to begin is by talking about the spiral of evil, uh, the problem of wrongdoing, the problem of sin, the problem of corruption is once it comes in, it, it works its way in and, and it starts a, a direction that we start to go down. And so the, the first verse, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, the word down there is more of a geographical term, but it really sets a parallel between Judah's story and Joseph's story. The, ne the next chapter, 39, we read about Joseph going down to Egypt because he's been sold to slavery. And there's lots of parallels and connections between the previous chapter, the next chapter, and this one. Um, but I do think from, from a literary perspective, though it may not be um, intended by the narrator, when he begins by talking about Judah going down from his brothers, I think the highlight is his removal from his brothers, but I think there's an indication that his going down is not just geographical, but this is a chapter about uh, a moral unraveling. And so, so it raises the question of, of why did Judah leave his brothers? Uh, see, the chapter that we looked at, Genesis 37, where, where there's these resentments against Joseph. Joseph, who's the, the beloved son out of 12. Joseph, who has this fancy robe given to him by his father. The brothers resented him. They hated him. But, you know, we could look at that and say they probably weren't acknowledging or aware of, or maybe the Bible just doesn't record the resentment towards their father. Uh, but or whatever other complicated things are going on. But all we know from the narrative is they hate Joseph and they think they're dealing with their problem of hate. We hate Joseph. Let's get rid of him. So they plan to kill him. Judah intervenes by saying, don't kill him. Instead of killing him, let's sell him to slavery. Maybe that's an improvement from murdering him, but that's not good. Um, but they set, sell him into slavery, come back, tell the father Joseph's been killed and at this point, isn't that restoration, right? Haven't they gotten rid of the problem? They've gotten rid of Joseph and his arrogance. They've got rid of the one that Jacob loves. So now Jacob could go back to loving his sons. Isn't that the way it works? But that's never the way it works, that when we act on our bitterness and resentment and think we're fixing the problem through an act that is uh, sinful, we've never fixed the problem. We've complicated it. So I don't know why Judah left his brothers but the promise of Abraham was to remain as a family and to stay in the land. And so his leaving signals something's not right. The family has not reached peace now that Joseph is gone. But Jacob himself chooses to leave. And in his leaving, we find that he takes his troubles and his troubled life with him. So um, this theme, uh, the, this passage, the, our translation uses a very strong word of wicked, <laughs> wickedness. But the focus is on Judah. But first we meet his son, Er, in verse 7 
don't know the details, but he was wicked, which is why I think that we have this phrase to err as human, but to forgive as divine. I don't think that has anything to do with this, uh, coincidentally, but his name. So Air, all we know about him is he's described as wicked, but he's married a woman, Tamar. And uh, even though it's strange for us as modern people, uh, in the ancient context, uh, with their, with their uh, conception of identity and descent and immortality being tied to family and all of these things, it was the custom, the moral obligation of the brother uh, to the deceased uh, uh, sister-in-law's husband to still provide children. So I know that sounds strange for any of us, and the Bible is not presenting this as, as a, a model for us to return to, but within this story, Onan had a moral obligation on behalf of his brother and on behalf of Tamar and on behalf of the family to provide children. And so he goes in and he engages Tamar sexually, but he doesn't complete things such that she could conceive. Now, that on its own doesn't sound like such a huge deal, but verse 10 describes what Onan did as wicked. Um, and yes, you can build a theology of sexuality or, or, or draw certain points uh, from this if you were to do a topical study, but that's not really the point of why this is recorded. He had the obligation to provide descendants. And he went in and he took advantage of Tamar, but didn't provide what he was actually there for. And it's described as wickedness and, and he, he dies. And so, so we have these two sons of Jacob, uh, of, of Judah, excuse me, who are now dead explicitly because of their wickedness. And so in verse 11, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So, so now the ancient context, uh, the husband dies, the family has a responsibility for providing offspring. Onan doesn't fulfill that responsibility. Judah, as the head of this particular family, has the responsibility and the, the natural order of things would be the next son, Sheila. But he sends Tamar away and he sends her away saying that it's a temporary thing until Sheila grows up till he's old enough. Again, that on its own is strange to us. But if you stay within the logic, um, what, what, what Judah is doing is deceptive. He has the obligation to provide offspring. Now, what happened when Onan did not live up to his obligation to provide offspring? It was determined to be wicked. So here Judah has the obligation now through his son, but instead he sends Tamar away telling her that it's temporary, but as it plays out, it seems he has no intention on ever fulfilling that promise. And why? It says he feared that he, being Shelah, would die. And so here we see the moral confusion that, that there's a backstory on this, that Judah has already been the kind of guy that thought he was doing a good thing, maybe by selling his brother into slavery. He's part of this plot to lie to his father, Jacob. Um, this dissent that once that becomes your way of life, moral clarity is never there. And so, so uh, what is the problem in this scenario? My son has died. My second son has died. What's the common denominator? According to Judah, it seems to be Tamar, right? She seems to be the cause of death. If I want to protect my youngest son, I need to get rid of her. But according to the narrator, the problem is not Tamar. The problem is Er and Onan. The problem is wickedness. So Judah is getting rid of the woman, but he's not getting rid of his wickedness. This is confused. 
and he's making things worse. So now sin is compounding. Um, and so uh, in this scenario, as it, as it gets set up, we find that the accent moves towards Judah as the actor and his decision. And again, in the ancient context, his choice to descend Tamar away banishes her to permanent widowhood. You know, when he says, you know, go to your father's home and he has no intention on providing uh, his youngest son, he says, just go there for a period. What he's doing is, is leaving her alone, unmarried, without descendants, to mourn, to grieve, no hope, because he has a superstitious fear that she uh, might have something uh, that would endanger his family. And uh, it's completely corrupt. There's a, there's a, a philosopher ethicist named Jay Budzuszewski. He teaches at the UT Austin. And he writes a little bit about self-deception and how that becomes a problem. And, and one of the things he says, he says, lies are weaklings. They need bodyguards. And this is the nature of deception. A lie is always at risk of being uncovered. And so one lie needs to be surrounded and protected. And there's various ways you could surround and protect it, but usually it's with other things that are untrue, which then the greatest risk, the greatest vulnerability we have is that our lie will be exposed. And of course, what we need to restore justice, what we need for fixing things is the truth. And yet we find ourselves wanting to maintain certain lies and then we surround ourselves with such confusion that, that then when we get into the business of trying to fix things, we are so confused that we can't figure out what the real problem is or we can identify it because we all have buy-in on this corrupt system. So there's this downward spiral that Judah is now part of and it, and it gets worse. And, and, and the next thing I want to talk about from this spiral of evil is the pain of exposure. In order for this story to be a redemptive story, in order for there to be a turnaround, there needs to be truth. <laughs> Something needs to come out, and that's indeed what happens. But it comes out in this odd, and, and uh, uh, this is really what an unusual story <laughs> in the Bible. We looked at the Bible for, you know, how am I supposed to live? Well, we're getting some lessons in how not to live from, from this passage. But, but Tamar, who is put in this terrible situation being sinned against, has to advocate for herself. She's entitled to children, and she concocts a plot. Uh, so Judah's wife dies, so he experiences another tragedy. After his time of mourning, he, he gets back in touch with his old friend, and they're going up to the sheep shearing. I would not have known this. I still don't understand this, but uh, apparently that indicates they're going to have some kind of party. Not a lot of sheep shearing in Manhattan, uh, but apparently, uh, you know, when you come out of mourning, that's a, that's a good way of, of celebrating. So he's on his way and he sees something potentially celebratory, a prostitute. So here's Tamar who knows he's going and she disguises herself. Uh, and she's on the side of the road and he wants to go in and engage her. So here's another story of Judah and a family member who will have unproductive, or his, that's his intention, sexual relations with Tamar. But she actually has uh, different plans. He doesn't know any of this. And, and being a person who made a pledge to her, go live with your father. And when my son, Sheila, is old enough, I will give him to you. You know, years have passed now. Sheila is old enough. He's not been given. Uh, uh, Tamar 
wisely concocts a plan to say, uh, well, what will you give me for this exchange? And he will give her a goat, quite valuable, uh, pretty uh, interesting note if you think of the, the role of the goat in the last passage. Um, but he promises to give a goat that he does not have. So she asks for some sign, some assurance, some, a down payment. And so he has a signet, a cord, and a staff, these identifying markers that, that people would carry with them that he plans on giving just, you know, as sort of like a, you know, with your credit card, you're going to rent a car and we're going we're to put $200 or whatever on it. And as soon as you, you pay for the car, you get that back and return it. So these are these identifying markers for him. He entrusts them to her, um, does what he does, goes on, and then he sends his friend with the goat. So he's actually going to fulfill his agreement. And in verse 23, we find after uh, his friend returns and says, there's no prostitute, nobody there knew anything about a prostitute, Judah says to him, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. A very interesting sentence. First of all, his social consciousness, we will be laughed at. So why did he not say, I have an agreement that I was going to give this goat and let's really fulfill it. His concern is he's going to look like a fool because he's claiming there was a prostitute there when there was no prostitute. And so what on earth happened? And so he'd rather just lose the goat than get laughed at. So, so he is self-aware of how he's perceived in the community. Um, but there's a moralizing here. You see, I sent this goat and you did not find her. He's a man of his word, isn't he? I said I would send the goat, and I did it. So now here's a situation where there's nothing we could do. There's nobody there. Uh, the prostitute isn't there. Nobody knows anything about her. We did our due diligence, and so I kept my word. I sent her the goat as I said I would. And he doesn't know this is the same person. And so the irony, of course, is to the same woman, he promised to send her a goat for a sexual exchange, and he fulfilled that promise. But he promised to give his son in order to honor her and his family, and he didn't keep that promise. But the way that, that we're, we're blinded is we always think we're moral. And so here he is, the man who fulfills his promise, who doesn't want to be laughed at. And then the word comes out, Tamar is pregnant. Tamar, who's supposed to be sitting at home, waiting for me to decide what will happen with her and her descendants. She's pregnant. Not from my son, because I did not give my son to her. This is immorality. So what do you do? And in the ancient society, he, he had the, the power to make the decision. This tragic, terrible statement, verse 24, Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. You know, such an awful moment. But there it is, the clarity. Here's his conviction. What does Judah do when he faces wickedness? He acts justly. You burn this immoral person. And this is a story that plays out over and over again with corrupt humanity trying to be upright and just. Just this last week or two, uh, one of the sort of social media stories was about this guy in, in show business in L.A. who pours himself a bowl of cereal, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and he sees in it what he thinks are shrimp tails. So he posts a picture of what looks like shrimp tails uh, and says, this was in my cereal. And he contacts the company and the company says, we're going to send you a free box of cereal. And he's, you know, well, that's nice, but why aren't you recalling every box of cereal at Costco in Los Angeles? Because there's clearly a problem. And, 
And so he was not satisfied with their corporate response. And so he, he kept publicly on social media um, showing uh, what they were doing. And, and he, he made charges. He, he accused them of gaslighting him. There's, you know, they're, they're saying there's no way that could have been us. It's you. And so now he's going to expose them. He's going to show you are gaslighting me. You are lying. You are not dealing with this. You don't care about your consumers and customers. And while this is happening and he's getting attention on social media, women that he dated, people who worked for him start on their social media saying, if you want to know what gaslighting is, let me tell you what it was like to date this guy. If you want to know what corruption and lies are, let me tell you what it was like to have a contract with this guy to work for him. Now, they were and who knows behind the scenes what was happening. All I know is the social media. But they were not trying to advocate for General Foods, General Mills Foods or, or whatever the corporation was. They weren't trying to make a case against him. What they were doing is they were exposing that the man who's talking about truth and honor and justice and obligation is far worse than the things he's charging them. So he, he wound up silencing himself and shutting off uh, the, the route that he was going. That's what most of us fear, <laughs> that we look out in the world and we say the world is filled with corruption. We need to stand up against it. But there's something in us, unless we're completely blind, that's afraid that when the truth comes out, we won't have control over the truth and how it comes out. And we ourselves will be found out. And so we're willing to buy into a certain measure of deception and settle for the effects of it. Because the Bible says all have sinned. And people say, well, we don't we believe the Bible, but intuitively we know there is right and wrong. And we long for right. But we're a confused people. So Tamar comes out and and Judah acts as judge. And he says, she's been immoral, burn her. And this is where we see the wisdom and the justice of Tamar, who has to advocate for herself and has these signs, these tokens that Judah had been willing to, to part with, his signet, his cord. And so, verse 25, she said, please identify whose these are. And there's evidence and that word identify there, um, that's a telling word in this narrative because there's been so much that's been cloaked in darkness. And now there's some, now truth needs to be known. Please identify who these belong to. And it's, it, it's not that it's an uncommon word, but it is the same word or the same phrase, the same, the same idea in the previous chapter, Genesis 37, as the brothers create a plot uh, to kill Joseph, they send him off to slavery they, they kill a goat and put blood on Joseph's robe. And they go to Jacob, their father. And they say, we believe Joseph has been eaten by an animal. And they hand the robe that clearly belongs to Joseph because it was so unique and special, but now covered with blood. And they say to their father, please identify who this belongs to. And so here Judah is part of a, a conspiracy to, to deceive his own father and he's using the blood of a goat and the robe of his brother. And he says, identify these in order to lie and make a man think that his beloved son has died. And now years later, Judah has just pronounced judgment. And now something of his comes out. And Tamar says, please identify whose these are. And that moment 
seems to be an undeniable confrontation that Judah can no longer cover up. He can't make excuses. He can't shift blame. And that winds up, I think, being a key moment in Judah's life. When you look at the narrative of going from somebody who had sold his brother Joseph into slavery so he can make a profit to Judah later on being the one who says, take Benjamin, who is found guilty of something in return, and I will take his place. What made Judah, the guy who would sell his brother, become a guy who would be willing to be punished for his brother? I think this moment was crucial because in verse 26, when Judah can't keep any lie or deception up anymore, he identifies, and it's not that he identified, he acknowledged what was in front of everyone. He identified these items and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give my son Shelah to her. So keep in mind, with, when Onan didn't live up to his obligation to provide descendants, he was wicked and worthy of death. Judah is saying, and I was obligated to give my son Shelah, and I didn't. When he says she's more righteous than I, he's not saying, what a wise and just plan you've put together. He may still be angry. He may still be judging her, but he's now confronted with the fact that as sinful as he may conclude she is, he is worse. And he's already announced what should happen to her. She should die. So here's Judah realizing the one who should die is more righteous than I am. And what do you do there? What is your hope? Well, there is no hope. That's the truth. And that must have crushed and humiliated Judah, who was afraid that he would be found out and laughed at and is now exposed as immoral, deceptive. And it's utterly crushing. And I don't know how he processed this, but we know that, that he's part of this story where Abraham was told that there would be a covenant, an agreement, a promise, and the sign would be circumcision. And that you'd follow these descendants. And I don't know for Judah, as one who would have been circumcised, if his circumcision became, in a moment like this, a source of shame. <laughs> I was the one who was supposed to carry on descendants and offspring, and now I have none. My two sons died. I withheld my third son. Now I've been found out. And this sign that was supposed to be a sign that I would be a light to the world is now a sign of my own failing. And yet circumcision was to be a sign of a covenant that we see throughout the Bible, that what God has promised, these signs he will be faithful to. <laughs> and so throughout the ages, the faithful Jewish descendants would, would uh, have the practices of circumcision and say, uh, identify, who, whose is this? <laughs> to who does this belong? That became the hope. Now, I don't know for Judah in this moment at all what he was thinking, but we know that when we follow the line of Judah, now through Perez, who was born at the end of the chapter, and through David, that the family is preserved as God promised for Judah's messiness and the messiness of all his descendants until we reach the one descendant, Jesus Christ, the one son who was not wicked, who was not sinful, who did not break his promises, who, who did not deceive or get caught up in the deception. But he came finally to fulfill God's promise to Abraham years ago that the offspring set aside with the sign of this covenant would show that even if humanity was unfaithful, God would remain faithful. And so Jesus comes as the brother who will then himself go before a crowd that, that uses the appearance of justice to render a verdict. As Pontius Pilate says, this man has done nothing wrong. I've examined him. So what should I do? 
And today's Palm Sunday. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, received with applause and the waving of palm branches. And by the end of the week, by Friday, Pilate will present him to the crowd as an innocent man and say, what should we do? And they will say, crucify him. All of their anger and hostility. You know, I don't know what Judah was thinking when he thought for that moment that Tamar had been immoral and unfaithful. And again, I, I don't want to do a modern psychology trick where I know nothing about it, but I could only imagine if he spent these years in bitterness thinking she was the cause of the death of his sons. Now, finally, the chance of vengeance came, but it was confused. It was untrue. And yet now I knew that this woman was immoral. He cries out for her to be burned. And there's a sense in which that crowd crying, crucify Jesus, is casting, they're heaping their sin upon him. And they have no idea that in condemning an innocent man, they are expressing, they are venting, they are showing the depth of their own sin and confusion. But where the story of Jesus is completely different than any, every other story in the Bible is where Judah was willing to give a goat, but not willing to give his son. We find that the crowd that called for the crucifixion of Jesus was willing to sacrifice goats and sheep. But God alone was willing to give his son. And we're told that when he was presented and condemned unjustly, the injustice and the immorality and the lies and the deceptions cast upon him were finally brought to light that this is a world that rejects and condemns God. This is a world that hates the truth and will always turn against with violence and anger and our own bitterness and resentments and our own confusion against what is true and right. Um, Jesus alone bears it and he receives it and he takes it from us so that finally the truth could be presented to us without humiliating us, without crushing us, without our first thought being, I'm going to be laughed at when the truth comes out. Now we find that there's grace. A community is formed that can be a community of truth. We can see ugliness without needing to make ex excuses for it, to step away from it, but we can confront and deal with truth because we know that God, who is a God of truth and God who speaks truth, shows mercy to liars. He bears the corruption and it gives a second chance. And, and the church is meant to be a community that then doesn't look away, doesn't self-justify, doesn't make excuses, but looks at the truth. The problem, of course, is though we are people greatly in need of redemption. And so long as we still use the old habits of covering of hiding, then within the church, we don't really have the opportunity to get towards the truth. And our church, like many others, for at least this year, but more, has been talking about how do we have conversations about race? And one of the reasons that topic, along with many others, is so hard in the church is because if we're really going to talk about it, not just because it's a current events item, not just because it's what our peers in the city expect of us, but because we're really concerned about what's true. And we really are against corruption and we really want justice and we're really willing to bring change. The vulnerability of having a conversation where we say, we are gonna raise a topic now and it's gonna bring out in many of us, our own unrelated hostilities, our own defensiveness, our own making excuses, our own blaming the wrong people, makes you wonder how on earth can we make progress the temptation is, 
let's just let's just settle. <laughs> let's not talk. Let's resume politeness. But the church is meant to be a community of grace. And so so maybe we don't have the political expertise as people that are advocating for policy have. Maybe we don't have the precise sociological definitions that the academics are working out. I don't know. Um, but the church does have Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Jesus Christ, who calls us to rede a redeemed life, to renewal, who calls us to change, who gives us the possibility of being different tomorrow than we were today, and who offers us forgiveness and grace. The church should be a place where we could have the conversation without wounding and hurting one another in our own defensiveness, in our own confusion, but we could humbly sit down and and try to identify what are we actually seeing unraveling in our society? What, what are we actually seeing that's true? Because if it's true, we don't wanna push it away. We don't wanna bury it. We wanna bring it to light. And what's not true in how I'm trying to make sense of it, we wanna let that go. And it's not easy, but any process of, of growth, of change, of redemption, involves truth and because truth in a sinful world involves pain it involves difficulty and so we have to be prepared for a long difficult period and so the last thing i'm going to talk about is the slow work of redemption this story that we've just read takes place over the course of 22 years you know it's one chapter there's not these time markers but you go through it and this is 22 years of judah's life he leaves his family and he experiences loss humiliation 22 years before somehow he winds up going back. We know that because he winds up with them as they go to Egypt and ultimately confronts the truth of Joseph's still being alive. But this moment is a turning point because for Judah, it, it was an identification of his own sin and an opportunity for him not to deny it. And we find that, that there was an irony here that Judah's condemnation of Tamar was far more tragic than he realized at the time, because when he said you should burn this woman, he gave no thought, if I'm burning this woman, I'm burning the child that she's pregnant with, right? So now he would be doing doubly wrong. What he's not aware of is she's pregnant with his own children and pregnant with twins. And so here there's a sense in which, which at the beginning of the story, Judah loses Er and Onan, two of his sons to wickedness and he has no third son. How is the promise of God gonna be fulfilled through him? Well, God has provided this means through Tamar. And Judah stands up and says, burn her. And in his confusion and anger and hate, anger and hate he pronounces a judgment that would cut off his own descendants. And because of how we know things played out, he is now getting in the way of the plan of God through Perez, the son that should be born to Tamar. Through God's intervention and God's timing, there's a limit to how much Judah could bring destruction to his own life. That is God's mercy and kindness that he was found out. He didn't feel like it at the moment. My guess. Um, verse 27, when the time of labor came, there were twins in her womb. And that's where this becomes a redemptive story, that for all of this mess, that nobody here is doing anything completely thoroughly upright. God is still at work to fulfill his promise to Abraham through his descendants. And now we have this strange story that's like these other stories. When Jacob was born, there was Esau. Esau was the older 
but Jacob gets the blessing. Later, we're going to read about Joseph having these two sons. And when Jacob goes to bless them, there's a, there's a switch with his arms and it winds up being Ephraim who gets the blessing. And here again, God is showing us that human plans and purposes always need God's intervention. And so this strange story of an arm coming out when Tamar is having children, it's, and it's the arm, not of Perez, but of Zerah. So they put a little cord around it. So there's also some evidence, but the arm goes back in. And then Perez, whose name means is breach or the one who broke, broke out first. He was not the first one out, but he wound up being the first one out. And so we have this strange story with Perez being born. Uh, that's verse 29. He drew back his hand. Behold, his brother came out and she names him. She says, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she calls his name Perez, that there's something about the people of Judah, that in this story, he, he looks like he'll be the last and Joseph's going to be the savior. But, but follow Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and you find that Judah is the one who then becomes the one who breaks forth into the front and through whom God will bring redemption. And so this tragic story that the story on its own, what good could come of this? And at the end of the story, God's redemptive work, you know, you do a read on, on what is it like to be a woman in an ancient society, or even a woman today, reckoning with this literature of how she's lied to, she's sinned against, she's accused, and, and sentenced to death. And then you come to the New Testament in Matthew 1, verse 3. So the New Testament, the new installation, the third verse, and there is Tamar, a woman named in the story of Jesus, you know, I don't know why Matthew, when he, when he wrote it, I don't know if he knew that he was going to be writing the first book after years of silence, the beginning of the New Testament, the link to the old story, but the seventh name, if you don't include the introduction of, uh, of Abraham and David, the seventh name, the third verse is Tamar. And that's what we see in this story. And we see again and again. Over time, God shows he doesn't forget his people. He, he sees his suffering people. He sees the people in the midst of lies, and the truth will come out. And there will be vindication. And it takes a long time, and it takes a lot of suffering. But God was watching over Tamar, and God was even watching over Judah, and God was watching over this broken family, and he was still at work. And so we come to today, and we still talk about how can there be justice. So there's a guy like Brian Stevenson, a lawyer you know, raising questions of how can we bring justice in today's uh, world where clearly justice isn't working. And he has this book that became very popular called The Just Mercy. So he's an attorney and he's concerned with justice. But he also writes as somebody who has his roots in Christianity. And so it's just, but he also makes an appeal for mercy. So his book is about a just mercy saying, if we want true justice when the world is this broken, justice has to come with mercy before we condemn everyone to death. We need to slow down. And one of the most famous lines in his book, he says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And it's that experience he's had in the criminal system when he's gotten to know people and seen how terrible everything is. He wants to make an appeal to say we need to improve. We don't want to stop punishing crime. We don't want to let people get away with things. We want more justice. But to get more just, we need to remember that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. We need to remember something that uniquely comes in Jesus, that there's mercy. And so I wonder if you can say that about your own life. Do you believe that you are more 
than the worst thing you've ever done. And if you do believe it, I want to ask why. Because if it's not grounded in the truth, your whole life will be a struggle to believe it. And then we're left having to lie and to deceive and to make excuses and to, to shift blame and to deal with our self-loathing by heaping it on others. Christianity gives that ground and that foundation. Jesus alone says, once I have come for the worst thing that you have ever done, then the hope is that your life could be better than anything you've done. But now you, when you've joined with me, it can be part of what I have done. And so if you are willing to see the truth that we need forgiveness and that God has provided it through Jesus Christ, you can have that hope and that assurance that God's redemptive work includes you and that you are not simply going to be the sum total of the worst things that you've done, but there's something better about your life, a better word spoken on your behalf. There's something else identifying the baptism that God shows as the promise that cleanses us from sin and shows us the spirit that is poured out. What it means is we can be a community of mercy and only a community of mercy can bring justice because we alone are able to deal with the truth and all of its pain. And so how do we grow? How do we go from being miserable sinners to godly people? It's the process of God's sanctification. It doesn't come from our effort, our wisdom. It comes from our letting go of lies and blame shifting and aligning ourselves with the truth and trusting God is merciful, even if we in our world are not. And when we're a community that does that, then we could start to have conversations about the truth because the truthful conversations will always expose that sin is in our midst and it's taken root for each of us. And we could be a merciful community that says we're not going to give up on aiming to be just, but we're going to recognize that apart from Christ, we are going to make the same mistakes everyone else is making. And we're going to perpetuate the same patterns that history has always shown. There's a better way. It's the way of the gospel. And if we believe that, there's hope for us. And so, friends, today, let's be so hopeful that we can go into the world this week and identify what's true and let go of anything that's not. And God will work redemptive, wonderful things in us. Let me pray for us. Our Father, for every time we have gathered to worship, for everything you've shown us, for every genuine evidence of progress. In this gathering this morning, there's so much we have to learn. There's so much we don't yet know. There's so much we're trying to avoid. And we know theologically that our problems are bigger than any of us can figure out or understand or handle. But Lord, we know that Jesus is greater than all of these things. And so we thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that we don't have to choose between forgiveness and truth, between mercy and justice but that Jesus who comes to show us what truth and justice actually is by showing mercy to us, justifies us, makes us upright. And so Lord, we don't want to continue to live as broken people. We want to live as justified people, not self-righteous people, but people who have been pardoned and made right by your grace. So Lord, as we work out our own fears, our own failings, our own regrets, Lord, don't simply help us to avoid the pain of them, but help us to be healed from them. That is the work of your spirit. Heal us from our sin, uh, make us new, and make us better this week than we were last week, and make us better in the upcoming years than we ever were, and do it in such a way 
that if anybody notices there's light shining from us, we would say it's the glory of Christ and give credit where credit is due. And so, Lord, we look to you this morning for that work in our hearts and minds. In his name, amen.